sermon this morning comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Amen. The Bible is a difficult book, isn't it? I mean, when we were young, the stories of Jesus, Noah, and Abraham were all quite cute and acceptable. Most of us were simply underinformed, and so the stories were quite heartwarming. But as we got older, some of us began to realize that Abraham once almost killed his own son. That all of humanity, save for eight souls, were destroyed by floodwaters outside of Noah's Ark. And that Jesus himself preached on the topic of hell over the topic of heaven at a ratio of seven to one. Yes, unquestionably, the Bible is a difficult book. I'm not going to sugarcoat it this morning. It is. And this morning, I I want to be honest with you. I know that as your new lead pastor for the Protestant worship service, uh, there are certain expectations. I've, I've even seen the banner hanging down the road, welcoming me and celebrating this picnic we're about to have later. But to be completely honest with all of you, Verse 1 of today's text is still very difficult for me. I told you I would be honest. With wonderful bluntness, the Apostle Peter, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands us to put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. There is a comprehensiveness to that text. And oh, how I fall short each and every single day. Malice, deceit, envy, and hypocrisy all lurk within my fallen heart. And it is only by the grace of God that they don't present themselves to their full potential each and every single day. I'm being honest with you this morning. 
My own life is filled with hypocrisy. No matter how many times I preach on forgiveness and contentment, I find myself battling malice and envy. And if not careful, those bitter feelings toward those who've wronged me in the past are far too easily accessible and easily dwelled upon. Envy of other pastors and their ministries lurk close by, causing possible discontentment and jealousy. And no matter how often Jesus said to give to the poor, I still find myself very reticent to do so. And when I do... It is never nearly enough. For example, when it came time for me to buy a new car, instead of buying the car that I should have, I I could have bought a cheaper model and given the rest of the money to the poor. But I didn't. Why? It is reported that India's Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You ever heard that before? If there was ever such a thing like a perfect church, I know that it would be imperfect the moment I joined it. Yes, indeed, the Bible is a very, very difficult book. Long ago, in between the 4th and 5th centuries, there once lived a bishop by the name of Augustine. Augustine once said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Now, if that confuses you, let me say that one more time. Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. I want you to keep that quote in your mind and mull over it because it is at the very heart of today's sermon. Although topical preaching has its place, expositional preaching, the type of preaching where a a teacher takes you verse by verse through an entire book of the Bible, is far better for the spiritual health of any congregation. Through expositional preaching, you not only receive the entire counsel of God, but expositional preaching also holds me, the preacher, accountable as I cannot skip and jump around cherry-picking my favorite Bible passages to preach in order to satisfy the ears of my audience. I think we all know that preaching on John 3.16 or that famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 on love is far easier for any pastor to preach than, say, a passage like today's 1 Peter 2.8. Verse Peter 2.8 is difficult. Look at that verse. But if we as Christians believe that the entire Bible in its totality is truly God's holy word, then we would do well to at least wrestle with passages like that this morning. And so as I was preparing this morning's message, I was smitten by that very last verse. Verse 8. It is immensely profound. The biblical text very straightforwardly informs us that unbelievers who disobey the gospel message do so, read the text, because they were destined to do so. 
Wow. That's literally what the Apostle Peter writes. I've met many college students and philosophy students who've stayed up long hours discussing the doctrine taught there in 1 Peter 2.8. Are human beings truly free? Does divine predestination negate human free will? Is the Bible in error when it teaches both human free will and predestination? Unless we begin that the Apostle Peter was some rogue apostle who was mistaken when he wrote verse 8, we will do well to recognize that the doctrine of verse 8 is very much in sync with the rest of the Bible. For example, take your Bible and turn with me to Mark 14.21. Just prior to his death on the cross, Jesus in reference to Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Just in case you ever thought that the Bible mistakenly taught a contradiction when it taught the doctrines of divine predestination and human free will, in Mark 14.21, we see both doctrines being taught in the very same verse. Surely there was no mistake there, no oversight. Jesus clearly knew that both were realities. And though they are apparent contradictions to the human mind, The first part of the verse, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, is the doctrine of divine predestination. Jesus is essentially saying that his crucifixion is inevitable because God had ordained it and prophesied it and had it written down in the Old Testament. There's no way around it. But then, in the second part of that very same verse... Jesus says, Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And that part of the verse is the doctrine of human free will and the doctrine of human responsibility. You see, God doesn't allow Judas to say, Well, you know, God, if it was ordained that I betray you, what could I have done? No, it says, Woe to that man he will be held responsible. Jesus is essentially saying that although it was prophesied that Judas would betray him, Judas is nevertheless a human agent, totally free in his volition, free in his will, who was going to be held fully responsible for his own actions and decisions. Apparently somehow, in the mighty, profound wisdom of God, Divine predestination does not negate free will. Both are true realities. I am not giving you sugar water this morning. An evil man is fully culpable and responsible for his own evil acts. Although in the sovereignty of God, God was the one who ordained it to come to pass, 
And yet God is fully without evil. How that exactly works is a question above my pay grade. I don't know. In fact, only God knows. However, as Christians, we would do well to hold both teachings in proper balance, for both are unquestionably taught in the pages of Scripture. Even our salvation is taught that way. God commands us that whenever the gospel is preached, you believe. You have the responsibility to believe in Jesus when the gospel is preached. But at the same time, the moment you believe, you look back and you realize, you know what, I didn't choose God he chose me. Because if he never chose me, I would have never believed. The mystery of God. Another apostle, the apostle Paul, wrote the following in Ephesians 4, 1.4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Isn't that breathtaking? For those of you who love and follow Jesus as your Savior this morning, Ephesians 1.4 teaches you that you were loved, chosen, elected, predestined, whatever term you want to use, by God before the creation of the world. What a wondrous thought. You were saved completely and miraculously by God's grace, and because you were saved by grace, nothing, not the devil, not your circumstance, and certainly not your sin, even your future sin, will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah! So many of us love to quote Jeremiah 1.5. I've seen this on so many cups and walls and posters that I think most of you have this verse memorized. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We all know that verse. We love that text. But take a look at that text, Jeremiah 1.5. Look closely at it. Before you were even conceived in your mother's womb, God knew you. God loved you. He set you apart to be holy. And even had a vocation prepared for you. Every chapter of your life was already known by God before even one was written. But that should give us immense comfort. Notice the key sequence. He chose you. Then he sanctified you. And then he gave you a work to do. Due to the truths of divine selection and grace, if you are a true believer in Christ this morning, then nothing can separate you from God. Nothing you did cause God to save you, and hence nothing you'll ever do will cause God to discard you. If you're heavy-hearted because of sin this morning, come to Jesus. He is the friend of sinners. He will never turn away anyone who comes to Him with a contrite heart. I want you to listen closely to the gospel. The gospel declares that there is a holy God who loves you, but He is a God of justice. As a judge who sits on the bench and perhaps has his own son come in as a, as a murderer who is videotaped of committing an act of murder, a just judge, though he loves the sinner, must administer justice. And so it is with us. God loves us, but He must administer justice. 
And that is bad news for all of us because we are all born as sinners. And we commit a lifetime full of sins, sin after sin. We've broken all of the Ten Commandments. We've all broken God's commands. We've lied, we've stolen, we've cheated. We are all guilty and we deserve hell. But the great news is that God loved you so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for your sins, pay for your sins, and three days later, resurrect from the grave, so that if you would repent of your sins and believe in Him as your Lord, God, and Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. And that is the most precious message on the face of this planet. It is belief in that message and only belief in that message that saves. But the moment you believe, you become a Christian. Today's central theological principle is because God chose us to be His, therefore we are able to live our lives as acceptable sacrifices to God. Because God chose us to be His, therefore we are able to live our lives as acceptable sacrifices to God. Or maybe I could put it another way. For the Christian, real substantive change is possible. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've said, oh, you know what, I give up. I can't change. It's the same sins all the time. I cannot change. I'm a wreck. And I thought maybe I'll never be like my mother, but here I am. Or maybe I'll never be like my father, but here I am doing the same exact thing. I have good news for you this morning. The Bible says that change is possible. And for three reasons, at least from this morning's text. Reason number one, the Bible commands it. And you're sitting there, okay. I have people command things all the time. It doesn't mean I can do it. But I want you to listen to me. In verse 1 of today's passage, God firmly commands us. Look at the text. Here's what it says. Rid yourself of deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. God would not give us empty commands. There is a full expectation that we fulfill that command. It was the late John Stott who once said that being biblical is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. That much is true. There is an expectation from God that Christians both privately and collectively strive together for righteousness. Remember, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus famously said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you hunger for righteousness this morning? Or are you beginning to dissipate into the immorality of our world that is all around us. The members of this chapel ought to be the moral standard and compass on this base. Now before you get all hopeless on me and you begin to think that's not me and I could never be that, I told you to keep Bishop Augustine's quote in mind. Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. 
And that brings us right away into reason number two. Reason number two, God grants you the ability to fulfill His commands. He does. The moment you believe in the gospel, you are what the Bible calls born again. At the moment of your rebirth, a heart transplant literally occurs as God removes your old heart of sin and gives you a new heart, one that desires holiness. At the moment of your rebirth, verse 3 becomes a reality. What's verse 3? Look at verse 3. It says, We taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. How many of you this morning have tasted that the Lord is good? Amen? you got to do better than that. The Lord is good. Amen? This rebirth into God's family makes us children of God and breaks any sort of fatalistic hopelessness. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by fatalistic hopelessness? I mean this. In Christ, it doesn't matter that you come from three generations of alcoholics or from two generations of divorcees. Through Christ, the bonds are broken, and a new beginning starts with you. In Christ, family of origin issues, though considerable, ask any counselor, they're considerable, do not have the final fatalistic say. Christ does. The Spirit of God does. The Word of God working in your life does. The Bible says you are a new creation. And you stop listening to the voice of the devil and you say, Yes, I can change. Real change is possible for the Christian because a real adoption into the family of God took place at conversion. Continue on with me. Verses 2 and 5 state that we are now holy priests. You may not feel like one, but you are. And I know the Catholics only use the word saints for those who are of a special class, but the Bible declares that all of you, brothers and sisters, are saints. A royal priesthood. Newborn babies who desire to imbibe the spiritual milk of God's Word. And the more we take in God's Word, whether through sermons, personal reading, or through commentaries, the more we are able to live our lives in a manner that is pleasing to Him. Or as verse 5 puts it, offer our lives as a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Reading God's Word, therefore, is integral for substantive change to occur. Sin will either keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. And reason number three, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. The next time someone tells you that you'll never change, the next time someone tells you that you'll just be like your father and your grandfather, the next time someone doubts your ability to love others because you have become so callous and cold, Tell them that your ability to genuinely love is just as genuine as Christ's love for you. The command by God to Christians to love others does not occur in a vacuum. It hinges on the fact that we are first loved by Christ. 
God says in his word, Therefore, love others, dearly beloved. We are empowered to love because God first loved us. You see, in verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah 28.16. It's a direct quote. Peter quotes Isaiah 28.16 and refers to Christ as chosen, precious cornerstone. If you trust in him, as the verse states, then you will never be put to shame. Psalm 118.22, the stone the builders rejected has has become the cornerstone. Jesus was the rejected, crucified cornerstone. This is all about Christ. Earlier I mentioned that it was Gandhi who once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I said, I used myself as an example of that. I recognize keenly how, how, how often I fall short. Observationally, therefore, one might think there's a lot of truth to Gandhi's statement. There are days, as I've stated, when I look at my own life and I think that there is a whole lot of truth in what Gandhi said. But when I come back to God's word, I see great hope for myself and you, all of you, my fellow pilgrims in the faith. Gandhi might say that our Christians are so unlike our Christ, but the Bible says something completely contrary. There's a lot of talk within this morning's text of spiritual houses, stones, and cornerstones. But the key word is found in the descriptive in front of the word stone in verse 4. Go ahead and look at it. What's the descriptive that's in front of verse 4? In, in front of the word stone. That's right. Living. The key word is living. If you missed it at your first reading of this passage, allow me to bring your attention to the obvious. It is odd to say that inanimate stones are alive. They're not. Having noted that, now take a close look at verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, there is a stone with a capital S. This, of course, is a reference to Christ. In verse 5, there is now a plural, stones, with a lowercase s. This now is a reference to Christians, followers of Jesus. Apparently in the mind of God, Christians are indeed being made to be just like Christ. Christ-likeness might not occur at a rate that pleases Gandhi. But nevertheless, it is a process that is a sure reality in Scripture. Remember that. The Apostle Peter, after describing Christ in verse 4, immediately follows up verse 5 by declaring, We also, just like Christ, are like living stones. There you go, Gandhi. The Word of God says contrary. Far from being inanimate, stagnant bricks, Christians are instead living stones. Yes, we fall short many times, but just like all living organisms, 
Although it takes time, the growth indeed is real and it will come. Provided, as the Apostle says in verse 2, we consistently feed on the milk of God's Word. So brothers and sisters, when we come together like this each Sunday morning, we, come, we become the temple of God, the spiritual house of holy priests offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is not this building, no matter how gorgeous it is. The church is the people of God gathered together for the worship of God. Amen? That's the church. And regardless of how disappointed you may be with your Christian walk this morning, I want you to be encouraged to press forward. The devil is a liar. Through Christ you have life, and life means growth. Slow sometimes, but it's real. Sure and steady growth. Because you are alive. Or as the old children's hymn so aptly put it, little by little, every day, little by little in every way, my Jesus is changing me. He's changing me, my precious Jesus. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going, but there's a knowing that one day, perfect, I will be. Indeed. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you, God, for giving us the opportunity this morning to...